0: Will you read with me Philippians 4, 10 through 14? I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. Make your way over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians, Philippians, goodness, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at a couple of verses. Here we've got uh, two or three more weeks in in the book of Philippians, and uh, let me find my place. Where's Philippians in my Bible? Shouldn't know that. <clears throat> Philippians four, ten through fourteen. I heard this once. I don't know who said it. I I think it was probably a motivational speaker or some kind of book writer. What do they call that? Author. Um, Nobody says at the end of their life, gee, I wish I would have spent more time at the office. Yeah, have you heard that quote before? Like nobody like on their deathbed, everything's wrapping up and like, okay, everything's shutting down, time to punch out. Man, I wish I spent more time at the office. Um, Maybe somebody does. You know, I say that out loud and I'm going to get an email this week. Actually, no, I really do wish I would have spent more time at the office. Um, maybe nowadays some of us should should broaden that understanding. Man, at the end of your life, you to say, "Oh, oh, I wish I would have spent more time on Facebook. Oh, just really miss some opportunities to see a video of a guy doing a thing." Um, oh, that now it's getting personal. Nobody's laughing at that one. Okay. <laughs> Okay, well, let's go after it then. And somebody say, man, I can't believe I missed the 39th season of my favorite show on Netflix. I could have stayed up all night another night. Uh, but, you know, and you say, well, when is that going to be? You're, you're shortening your life by staying up all night watching Netflix. I don't know. I, I shouldn't say that. So here's the question. Here's what this passage is driving at. And what's my point here is what is the real stuff of life? That's what those questions are driving at. What's the real stuff of life that makes life life? And the Apostle Paul here in the passage by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is is driving at that and wants us to understand what is the real stuff of life. And in particular, what do those relationships look like even when talking about actual stuff? Because in this passage, we're addressing both relationships Paul had with the Philippian believers. At the same time, he is also talking about financial support that they were providing to him. And so he's saying, what is the real stuff of life? Since the Philippian believers are participating in his ministry with actual stuff, he is now driving home what is the real stuff of life. So let's, let's just take a, a few minutes to come up with a couple ideas here. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord, he says. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So what's happened is they have a relationship that's been ongoing for years, and now at this particular juncture, they've had an opportunity to provide support to him while he's in prison, and he has been filled with joy because this relational connection is happening again as it happened uh, long before. Uh, a lady named Melissa told this story. She was on the beach with her husband in an important family heirloom ring fell off her finger. It wasn't her wedding ring, but it was a band that was given to her by her mother and by her mother's mother and her mother's mother's, mother's mother. Um, and she lost it, dropped it on the beach. As you could imagine, she couldn't find it uh, on the beach. And she lost it, walked away, couldn't find it. Okay, uh, 27 years later, she gets a phone call. Somebody had found it that day. But they didn't know whose it was. And through a number of sort of happenstance situations, they were able to identify the markings on the inside of that ring. And 27 years later, this collector returned that ring to Melissa. And she got this ring back. And it was a valuable ring. It was an expensive ring. That's why the collector had it. But do you think Melissa was concerned about the diamond or the setting or the band? Absolutely not. She was concerned because that ring meant something to her mom and her grandmother. And there was, in some sense, by having that ring back, that connection that she yearned for with her mom and grandmother were somewhat connected. And that's what Paul is getting here. The Philippian believers had sent him support, probably clothing, probably money, probably some food. Uh, and a number of things he could have used in his time in prison. But what he is saying, he is rejoicing in the Lord that the Philippian believers are reconnected with him in relationship. The real stuff of life, he is saying, is the relationship, and it's a gift to be enjoyed. Look what he says at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord when that connection was remade. His heart was filled with joy when he saw this relationship and this connection with the Philippian believers was was occurring the way it had been occurring in years past and he's not minimizing his need that he had in terms of financial support but primarily what he's enjoying is the fact that he now has a personal connection that's close and endearing with the believers in philippi again we could say it this way what mattered most to paul was how the believers in the philippian church were once again displaying what friendship looks like in the body of Christ. And he most appreciated that connection of friendship. We know a little bit about this support that Philippi provided. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 8, I'm going to read the first five verses. Uh, This is what it says. He's writing to the church in Corinth about uh, what's going on here. Here's what he says to the people in the church in Corinth. Excuse me, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, for those of you who maybe don't know, uh, the Philippian church is in Macedonia. He's talking about the believers, among others, in the the church at Philippi. Look what it says in verse 2 For in a severe test of affliction, Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, in fact, beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, actually not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about the Philippian believers and their joy of giving years and years and years before where they had collected money for the poor people in Jerusalem who couldn't support themselves. And he's reporting to the people in the city of Corinth who were extraordinarily wealthy how the people in Macedonia had participated in supporting the believers in Jerusalem who were impoverished. In fact, what what he says is kind of interesting. Verse 4, of 1 Corinthians 8. They were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They were scrambling to Paul. Can we participate? Can we, can we do this? Can we be a part of helping out? And you can imagine what Paul was saying. He said, listen, folks, you can barely pay your own bills. You know, why don't you simmer down a little bit, campers? I'll go to Corinth. They can write us some big old checks, and it won't even change anything about their life. And the Philippian believers wouldn't have it. wouldn't have it. Are you kidding me? no 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 you're not you're not robbing us of this and so this is paul is saying what well, the biggest thing that he is taking from this is not their dollar bills look what it says verse 5 first corinthians 8 they gave themselves first to the lord and then by the will of god to us what charged up paul was how devoted to the lord the believers in philippi were It was secondary how that devotion was being expressed, which in this case was through generosity to the poor. But Paul was moved. He said, I can't, these folks are really devoted to the Lord, and you can really see it in how they are partnering and participating with others in the Lord. All right, let's go back to Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. So Paul is saying, the real stuff of life is a gift of God, and it is to be enjoyed. Friendships in the Lord, where we share with one another, is in fact to be enjoyed and rejoiced over. Like we mentioned earlier, it is not a virtue in the Christian life to see how grumpy and sour we can be. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, I rejoice in the Lord. He was happy, he let out a little bit of a holler. Yes, because his needs were met. He had some needs that had to be taken care of. But also he thought, the Philippians, they thought of me. The Philippians were thinking of me, which I know Paul would be thinking, which means they were praying for me, which means they have a partnership with me in the gospel. And the real stuff of life is the joy that comes through relational community in the body of Christ by sharing with and for one another, and not just stuff but time and energy and friendship and closeness. The thing that Paul derived from this relationship with the believers in Philippi was joy. He enjoyed it. He had the joy of knowing that others cared deeply for him. Now here's the thing. If Paul had not had a need which needed to be addressed, Paul would never have experienced this kind of joy. If Paul had never been in a situation where he needed to receive from others, in this case, stuff, but maybe receive from others help, receive from others time, energy, care, conversation, whatever it might be, he would never have experienced this joy if he was the kind of person who never had any need or the kind of person who has plenty of needs but simply refuses to let anyone in on that. And the opportunity we miss is when we're so closed off in relationship, we don't get to experience the joy of having others share in what's going on in our lives. Look what happened. You indeed were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. They had no opportunity to partner with Paul. What was the obstacle to them partnering with Paul in the needs that he had? There might have been a couple of things. The Bible doesn't make them terribly clear what those were, and so I am going to guess. I'm telling you that so you don't write down the Bible says these things. No, you can write down Greg says these things. He's usually wrong, but I'm going to guess nonetheless. It could have been that they had collected some money, but they didn't have the opportunity to send it to Paul. Remember, they couldn't pull up their bank app and iMessage the funds to his phone. They would have had to collect the actual monies, which might have been gold, it might have been silver, it might have been currency, it might have been clothing and books and these kinds of things, and all of these things are extremely highly valued. They would have had to have the money collected, it would have taken some room, and then they would have had to get it from where they are to where Paul is, which means they would have had to have some people who are willing to take that trip with highly valuable stuff, I don't know if you've seen any of the old westerns where the train is barreling or the, the stagecoach is barreling. What always happens? They get, it gets robbed. Yeah, the guy with the black hat comes riding in. Oh, no, what's going to happen? Somebody ends up tight on the railroad thing, and I don't know. All of them seem the same. Um, and so you got these guys that are carrying a big old thing of dollar bills, and, like, what's going to happen? You know, so they didn't have an opportunity. They also, because we know of their situation, if they were going to support Paul financially, they didn't just take a collection. This is something they would have had to come together and plan for. This was not a, a wealthy group of people. They would have had to figure this out over time. And what he is saying is he's discovering by receiving this support from them, this was something where they were fully invested into sharing in the troubles that Paul was going through, and he took great joy in realizing how deeply they cared for him. They saw an opportunity, and they took the opportunity because both the Philippian believers as well as Paul experienced the joy of sharing in trouble together. The real stuff of life is a gift to be enjoyed, sharing one another's troubles there's a common refrain, maybe, about giving. You've probably heard it before, and it's, it's somewhat true, so I'm not, I don't want to completely ruin this one for you. It's better to give than to receive, right? You've heard this before, and I'm okay with that. There's some truth to that, so I don't want you to think I'm, I'm calling that heresy. Not at all. However, what we tend to do is build into... It's better to give than to receive, because if you're receiving something... That means you're kind of a lame Because what's your problem? Get your act together. Okay, fine. We'll help you out. But if you find yourself in this spot again, you're cut off. Right? Now, notice the Scripture is not addressing these relationships in this way. The Philippian believers had the joy of sharing in Paul's troubles by supporting him. And Paul's saying, and I share in the joy of your relationship sharing with me. The giving and receiving does not establish a hierarchy of relationship. What it does establish is a unity of relationship in Christ alone. It is not necessarily better to give than to receive. What is important is to enjoy the closeness that is partnership together in caring with Christ. What he's saying is when we're sharing in one another's troubles... We both take the joy of knowing what it's like to be in Christ together, some giving, some receiving. What this means is we have to be willing in some ways, if we're going to understand the gospel in our lives, to go to war with independence. Not the war of independence. To go to war with independence. This notion in our minds that we need to be a self-made person. Stand up on my own two feet. Pull myself up by my bootstraps. This is not a biblical way of thinking at all. The way the Bible paints us in community together is what we call mutual interdependence, where sometimes you need help, sometimes I need help, sometimes someone else needs help. Sometimes that help is financial, sometimes it's spiritual, sometimes there is time that needs to be spent. Whatever the help might be. But the concept here is, if we never need any help, We will never enjoy the rejoicing Paul is talking about here. If your goal in your life, in your life with Christ, is to make sure you never need anyone, you will never experience the joy of the real stuff of life. Because the gospel tells us you need someone. His name is Jesus. And the way he brings Jesus to the moment by moments of your life is through the people around you. Sometimes you will get to be the joy, have the joy of providing for someone. Time, energy, effort, even money. Other times, though, you need to receive. And what do you need to do when you're the one receiving? Bow and scrape. Oh, thank you, great one who has helped me. Right? No. Rejoice. The Lord has provided. We worship the Lord together. So we, you have, God has provided for my needs through this person. Praise and thank you. God, the real stuff of life, is a gift to be enjoyed when we encounter relationship with others in the gospel. Okay, look at verses 11, <clears throat> excuse me, 12 and 13. The real, <coughs> excuse me, the real stuff of life, as it turns out, isn't stuff. You all know this, right? So I can skip this point. Uh, I'll just cover it in case somebody came in in the back. What we didn't. Say. All right. The real stuff of life isn't stuff. Now, if you wanted to uh, know what the secret was, like, a lot of times when you ask successful people, you go up to a successful person, maybe in your field of work, you say, oh, you know, you're doing the same line of work I do, and, and you're very successful. What's your secret? Uh, what is your secret to uh, the, the, your professional career? What's the secret to, uh, to uh, parenting? And no, seriously, if you have that secret, email me. I'd love that information. Uh, what's your secret to... Uh, thank you, Seth. What's your uh, secret... Uh, to having a, a good marriage, being a good husband. Excuse me, just one minute. Oh, that's good water. That's a good year. Well-aged. <clears throat> what's, your, uh, what's your secret? And Paul here is going to tell us his secret. He's going to tell us his secret. Let, read verse 11, 12, and 13. And just a fair warning, I am going to ruin one of your favorite verses in the course of this message. Here's what it says. Verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need... I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret, see that, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the real stuff of life is, isn't stuff. And the point Paul is trying to make here is not that he's going to take a vow of poverty and not that he is going to take, uh, spend his life pursuing wealth. The point he is making is he wants to keep stuff where stuff is supposed to stay. Keep stuff in its place. And the way he keeps stuff in its place is by keeping his heart ordered and organized by God himself. Okay? He wants to keep his heart organized and ordered according to God's things. And by doing so, he will keep stuff, money and homes and cars and whatever else you like to have, where it's supposed to be in his life. Pay attention as we work through this. He is not saying he keeps stuff in, his, in its right place by doing certain things with stuff. Like some of us think the way we keep stuff where it's supposed to be is by giving some of it away. How do I keep money where it's supposed to be in my life? I'll give some of it away, and that way, that'll keep it parked where it's supposed to be. I'm going to let you in on a secret. You can give away money and still be greedy with what you kept. Yeah. You know, okay. I can't tell if you believe me or if you understand me. I can make fifty bucks. I know. It's huge, right? Swinging for the fences. Give ten percent of it away. That's like two dollars. That it's $5. No way. <laughs> we have to do a math lesson up in here? Okay. I can give 10% of it away. I've got $45. I can still be a selfish son of a gun with the 45 I have left. Giving the money away didn't magically make me holy with the money that's left. So what I do with my stuff doesn't keep it in its right place. What I do with my heart determines what I do with my stuff and with everything else in my life. And that's what Paul is getting here. He's saying the secret isn't my attitude towards stuff, what I do with my stuff, what I don't do with my stuff, how much stuff I have. None of that has anything to do with it. What matters is the condition of my heart. And he says, I want my heart ordered after God's things. Look what he says. I am not speaking of being in need. What are you talking about? You just thank them for the money you needed. Because this is his point. Yes, I had bills to pay. Yes, I had to buy food. By the way, in Romans prisons, they didn't give you food. That was your job. How am I supposed to go out and earn money to to buy food? I'm in jail. Romans, what do they say? Not my problem. And so he needed, he did have need. He needed stuff to buy food. But he says, listen, I'm not speaking like I have need. Yes, on the one hand, sure, I need to eat. But also on the other hand, no, I don't. What's the worst that could happen? I could starve to death. That sounds bad. Unless you're going to live forever. That's what he's saying. I have learned. I'm not talking about one who actually has needs, he's saying. I have learned in whatever situation I am in, at the verse, end of verse 11, to be content. Verse 12. Verse 12. I know what it's like to be content when I have absolutely nothing, being brought low. He also says, I know what it's like to be content when i got more than I know what to do with, when he's abounding. In every situation, he has learned the secret to that situation is to say, I'm good, I have Jesus. Okay? So the secret is, how am I in the course of my life, regardless of what situation I'm in, would I have lots of stuff or no stuff, And owe lots of stuff. The secret, he says, is to be content with where the Lord has me. And the proper response to that is what? That's impossible. I didn't get an amen on that. Are you kidding me? So you all got this contentment thing dialed in? Because I am so far from this. I can't even explain to you. I'm not even contented with a sermon. I'm preaching on it. Are you kidding me? What do we say? So no matter, no matter if I have lots of, little, little amount and I owe money and whatever, I'm supposed to be content, okay? Even if I have lots and lots of money, I'm not supposed to be content with the money. I'm still content with Jesus. Yeah, that's not easy, right? No, that's impossible. To ask the human heart to disregard our well-being according to our stuff and instead regard our well-being according to our Savior is by its very nature impossible. So, what does he reply? Verse 13, look at it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I'm about to ruin Steph Curry's life verse. Half of you don't know who Steph Curry is. He's a basketball player and he has this on his shoes. Now, I'm glad it's on his shoes. Don't get me wrong. The all in all there. I can do all things through him who strengthened me. I got to call somebody on the phone. It's illegal to use my phone in the car. I hope I don't get a ticket. I can do all things through God who strengthens me. No, no. I'm going into an interview. I'm really nervous. I hope I do really well. Okay, I can do all things through God who strengthens me. Well, yeah, God might bless your interview, but you don't get to force God to bless your interview because of this verse. What is he saying? I can do all things through strengthens me. I can be content in every situation because God strengthens me. He said, Well, it's impossible to be content in every and any situation. Do you know what my life is like? Do you know what my family is like? Do you know what my job is like? Do you know what my health is like? Do you know what my country is like? Do you know whatever it might be for you that's driving you nuts? And Paul goes, You're right, it's totally impossible. The only way you are going to be able to order your heart and find contentment in Christ alone is if God shows up and does a miracle. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You and I don't want that miracle. We want stuff. God offers us something. I will make you content right where you are. And we say, or you could give me what I really want. God, I think that's cheaper. Hook a brother up. and God's, But that won't give you the good thing. The good thing is contentment in Christ. I thought for sure we'd be done by the Super Bowl. Um, I, I'm not, but you're going to have to be content uh, with the <laughs> situation. I don't care. Seahawks are out, apparently, so I'm not, whatever. Okay, we're going to do the next part. I've got a couple of different passages. We're just going to read them briefly, but they're critical to look at. First one we looked at briefly last week. Let's look at this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. These will be up on the screen, uh, so if I go a little quickly... You uh, you don't have to flip to it in your copy of the scripture unless you'd like to. This is what Jesus says. We read it last week, but it's worth reminding ourselves. that fits here with Paul's view of things. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, about what you will eat, what you will drink, about your body, about what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow or reap. They don't have, gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, listen. Do not be anxious by saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. We have needs. We do need to eat to survive. We do need to wear clothing. And God is saying, find your meaning, your contentment, your real stuff of life in the kingdom of God. And let God handle all those other things. Because none of those other things will will bring you the rest that God's kingdom will provide. Think of it this way. If you seek God and God alone, there will always be more of God to seek. Because God is eternal and you will never know all of him. If the purpose of your life is to seek God and God alone, you will never run out of the excitement of seeking Because there will always be more God to be found, because he is that big. However, if we spend our life seeking stuff, there will never be enough. That's what we learn in the scripture. When we see God alone, there will always be more. When we spend our life seeking stuff, there will never be enough. And if if you have lived your life seeking stuff and there's been enough, you're going to have to let me know, because you'll be the first one okay Philippians 1 21 Philippians 1 21 I believe it'll be up on the screen well what if I don't get enough food what if I don't get enough clothes what if I don't get healthy and I die for me to live is Christ and to die is gain that's crazy I mean do you hear how crazy that sounds I mean, I know many, many of us, if not most of us, are believers. We've read this, life, this verse before. But you have to understand w- what the Bible is calling us to. The gospel in Christ means eternal life forever. Which means no matter what happens here, our hopes are hinged on the fact that we will live forever. Again, a little stat. I know st- statistics can always be a little bit skewed based on the poll seeker. But as far as I can tell, everybody dies not everybody is dead yet, obviously, we're here. But as far as I can tell, in human history, everybody's died. So at some point, absent the return of Christ, you and I are going to move from this life to the next one. And what Paul is just doing is simply describing the reality of the situation. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Why am I so worried about stuff. Why am I so worried if I'm going to have enough to eat today, if I'm going to have something to wear today, if I'm going to have an income this week, if I'm going to get better? Why am I so worried about that? Because that's what humans do, right? We're being asked by the scripture to do something impossible and say, I don't have to worry anymore because the worst thing that could happen is I could live for eternity. That's a pretty good notion, However, this means the gospel is more than good good news fairy dust sprinkled uh, across the otherwise satisfying American life. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is intended to draw our life off of all our uh, earthbound hopes and dreams and fix them instead on Christ alone. A couple of verses from the Old Testament, and then we'll uh, move on to the fourth point of 10. I think there's 10. Buckle in. Proverbs 30, Proverbs 30, I love the Proverbs. This is what, Proverbs 30, verses eight and nine, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Pay attention, listen. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Who prayed that this week? Nobody prays that. Give me riches. Hook a brother up. That's what we're praying. Look, here's what, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Verse nine lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I become poor and steal and profane the name of God. See what he's saying? He said, God, I realize my stuff can have an impact on my relationship with you. God, only give me the stuff that maximizes my connection with you. Are we brave enough to pray that prayer? God, I will love you if you will give me stuff. Proverbs says it different. God, do with my stuff whatever you need to do so that my heart is fully set on you. That's what the Apostle Paul is getting at over in Philippians. My heart needs to be ordered properly so I keep stuff where it's supposed to stay. Okay, last uh, Old Testament verse in this section Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. Moses is writing to the people of Israel just before they go into the promised land, and here's what he says to them. It's a, it's a passage you're familiar with, but it, it connects here. Take care, he says, to the people of Israel, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses, and you live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your, and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied then your heart will be lifted up and and you forget the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery so what he's saying is this discontentment is normal and what we tend to do is accumulate stuff to address our discontentment and when we accumulate stuff to address our discontentment we unknowingly undermine our ability to know God well And what he's calling us to do is not take a vow of poverty and get rid of all our stuff. He's saying, order your heart. Say, God, whatever you need to do in my life so that my heart is set on you, and I do not forget your faithfulness and your kindness and the blood of Christ shed on the cross for me. Whatever you need to do, God, help my heart to be fully set on you. That is where we find contentment. And that is why in Philippians he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because that requires a miracle. The real stuff of life, as it turns out, isn't stuff. Verse 14. Look at verse 14 of Philippians chapter 4. One little sentence. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. The real stuff of life is found with others. And we're inspired by these kind of things. We, we hear of people donating a kidney to maybe a coworker or a friend or maybe somebody they don't know, don't know that well. And we're like, wow, that's... <laughs> That's impressive. That's incredible. That's unexpected. That, that kind of risk-taking and connection with others is, is inspiring. And what Paul is saying is here, you know, your kindness to me in connecting with me and the, and the troubles I am having, it moved me. Your, your kindness, that warps of friendship and partnership. Look at what he says here. It was kind of you to share in my trouble what he's saying is they're coming in and they're saying, you have something we want. We want to we come in on the ground floor of what you have and we want to invest in what you have. And Paul says, what are you talking about? What do I have? They say, you have trouble. We want a piece of that action. What's it going to cost us to get it in on the ground floor of your personal suffering and misery? Uh, 100 bucks? Okay, you got it. And so what they do is they take their stuff... They give it to Paul, and the idea here is transferring some of Paul's trouble to them. That's what a partnership is, the sharing of troubles. And he's, when they have shared in Paul's troubles together, it, it, their kindness, it fills him with warmth and joy of the Lord. And this shouldn't surprise us. Look at how he uh, talks about these people in Philippians 1.7. He says this, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So the Philippian believers have partnered in Paul's trouble, not merely in sharing some of his financial expenses, but the trouble that comes with sharing the gospel in a hostile hostile culture. And he is saying their mutual partnership in the gospel has warmed him and encouraged him. And, and he's saying the real stuff of life is not the stuff. It's what we have found together in Christ in the gospel. Paul's deep care and affection for them was rekindled because he saw anew how much they were concerned for him. And not only that, how much they were concerned for him in relationship with Jesus Christ. And by saying this is a kindness in Philippians uh, 4 uh, 14, he is saying this is not an obligation. This was an action that was taken voluntarily voluntarily. That's a w- new word. <laughs> voluntarily, joyfully, gladly. And they shared in his ministry through a partnership that went far beyond just a financial donation. It went into sharing with Paul in the challenges and troubles he had, was facing in the gospel. When they, said that, when they shared in the trouble, they're saying, what we want to do in our partnership with you is partner with you in a way that is costly. They were not giving a gift so that they would feel good. They were giving a gift so they could participate in Paul feeling bad. That's a sharing of the gospel. They were giving a gift in order to share in the trouble of the person that they were sharing with. As we've said before about this being an exchange of trouble in, uh, I'm going to talk mechanics for a little bit. Try and stay with me if you're not a mechanical-minded person. In a gas furnace, already, okay, I'm out. I see many, uh, I'm out. There is a thing. My understanding is it's called a heat exchanger. Let me explain it to you in detail with this YouTube video. I'm kidding. No, not gonna. So, what happens is the fire burns. I think they put natural gas in there and they light it on fire. There's a little elf in there and he lights a match and he lights and the flame goes, okay? Feed that elf. Um, It burns. Then that thing gets hot. Are you staying with me? Then you blow air across that and the air gets hot. Then the air goes into your house and you say, Ah, it's warm. But the other person in your house says, no, it's not. It's freezing. And then you get in a fight. From what I've heard, that's what Todd and Jordan told me. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, you guys. Uh, So it's a heat exchanger. So it's exchanging one thing and giving it to someone else. The heat is going from the natural gas flame to the metal to the air. And what is happening here in the sharing of the trouble is they are coming to Paul and saying, give us some of your trouble. And they're exchanging it. Why am I saying this? Because the the modern mindset is I am giving to someone, time, money, energy, conversation, so that I can walk away from this and say, you know what, I feel pretty good about that. That's our our thinking on generosity today. The modern mind is I give so I can feel good about giving. Now listen, I want you to feel good about giving. That's That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is they are participating with Paul so they can share in their troubles. How do you know you're hitting it out of the park on this? You participate in someone's troubles. You wake up in the next morning, you go, what was I thinking? I'm not sure if that was such a good decision. What have I done? This is real pain. That's what, this is sharing of troubles. This isn't, you know, giving a little here so I can, oh, I feel pretty good about myself. This is giving, and now I'm carrying somebody else's weight a little bit. That's a partnership of sharing trouble, and the joy comes from the one who received it. Some of the trouble is spread out, and the joy comes from those who are enduring it with that person saying, my God can meet all my needs. He can do the impossible, and he is. I I have shared in someone's trouble, and I didn't think I could do it, but now by the strength of the Lord, as it turns out, I can do it. And there is joy to be found there. The real stuff of life is a gift to be enjoyed. The real stuff of life is not stuff. And the real stuff of life is found in sharing with others. Three questions, and then we'll close. First one. Paul started this by saying, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. So, again, we mentioned this earlier. And I'm working on this too. My general temperament is sour, melancholy. What do you call it? A pessimist. What a, I've told you what a pessimist call it. We see the world the way it really is, and we're delighted to tell you how it is. <laughs> have you smiled recently? I mean, of course, you hear a joke or you see something on TV. Uh, sure, we'll, we'll crack a smile. But in the general contours of your life, have you sat back and said, you know what? It's all right. Yeah, you know what? As it turns out, I'm good. That's where Paul is. Now, where is Paul writing this? Jail. You can't even put three square meals together unless the Philippians show up. And you say, you know what, actually, kind of squared away, got a roof over my head. The guard this week is halfway nice. Yes, life is hard. Yes, life sometimes is not only hard, it's a nightmare. Yes, sometimes we cry ourselves to sleep. Yes, sometimes we cry and don't fall asleep and wake up and we're still crying. But the question is is God in it? And can we, by His grace, experience a joy of knowing, I have cried, so we're good? That's the real stuff. Have you smiled? Have you sought the Lord that he might do the impossible in your heart, that you could, in fact, if nothing else changed, find contentment? Okay, next question. What's your net worth? Uh, I'm not asking you to fill out the offering card. Uh, So this one is a real cheesy Christian answer, but it's the best way to get you to remember this. What's your net worth? And the answer is what? The answer in church is always, is Jesus. What's your net worth? Uh, Ephesians 1 says it this way. We are heirs to the kingdom of heaven, co-heirs with Christ. What on planet earth could you possibly be yearning so badly for? You say, well, that's not here yet. And that's kind of just a fairy tale for when to deal with life. No, that's where hope is found. What's our net worth? It is the kingdom of God. And any other calculation... Will fall dramatically short. There is nothing in the world you don't have in Christ. To live is Christ. Okay, last one, and um, and then we'll close. Biblical kindness is not karma. I picked on this before, I'm gonna do it again because I haven't offended everybody I want to yet. Uh, It's, and I only bring this up because it helps illustrate a little bit of how our culture views generosity and by our culture I mean you and me. Uh, I call it karma bucks. Karma bucks is when you're in line at Starbucks and you buy a coffee for the guy behind you and you drive out and you go, did some good today. I bought coffee for that guy behind me. So, and I've illustrated this way before, but it's worth remembering. So you, in your late model SUV, are buying a $5 coffee for a guy in a BMW. I don't think we've quite scratched the service of changing the world kind of thing yet. Now, we're being silly, but here's, here's the point. Well, how would I do that in, in understanding this biblical passage? Here's a way of just reframing that. If you went to Starbucks and went to buy your coffee and you say, uh, I'm going to get one uh, $5 coffee. What, I don't care what it is. Just make sure it's $5. Because to me, that's a lot of money for a coffee. Okay, Maybe for you, that's how much? you. I don't know. Five bucks a lot of money for a coffee. And you say, give it to the guy behind me. And the person says, okay, great. What are you going to order? Oh, no, I can't afford coffee now. I bought it for that guy. I only got five bucks. See, that's what the Bible is saying. See, we want to say, okay, I can be generous. I still get to keep all my stuff. That's not what the Philippian believers did. They shared in the trouble of Paul, meaning they took their stuff, gave it to Paul, and received on behalf of Paul his trouble. That's a different way of thinking about engaging in generous relationships with others around us. This is not a question of, can I afford it? The Philippian believers said, Finally, we have an opportunity to help an individual that we can't afford because that's hard to come by. And so they transferred trouble. So biblical kindness is caring for others to such a degree that it demonstrates our hope is not here, it's somewhere else. If I am an heir to the kingdom of heaven, how much am I willing to share with others? Most my time my energy, my conversation, and at times it might even be my stuff. The real stuff of life. A gift to be enjoyed is not stuff, and the real stuff of life is found with others in Christ Jesus.